Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. All right, good to have you all here. And we're going to keep going in our series on the book of Luke. And so 24 chapters in the book of Luke. And uh, today we get to Luke chapter 19. And I want to read you uh, four verses, verses 41 to 44. Um, but before we even get into this message, I, ju- I just want to say this. Uh, you know, there are times when we go into God's Word uh, to hear what God is saying to us about our lives. And, uh, and, and those are wonderful. I love those. And, and there's times when we pray to God and we go to Him and we pray to Him about our concerns. And that's really wonderful. But what too many Christians do is they don't ever progress beyond that. They only ever talk to God about their concerns. They only ever want to study the Bible about how it applies to their life and their concerns. And at a certain point, if we're going to actually mature in Jesus, it has to be a two-way relationship. At some point, we also start to care. It's not that we, we stop caring about the stuff going on in our lives, but we actually also start to care about what's on his heart. Amen? Amen. And there's certain passages of Scripture that lend themselves well to, hey, here's some stuff, stuff to make your life better. And if you follow Jesus in this, it's going to be better. Then there's other passages of Scripture that are all about Jesus' heart. And there is no immediate application to what does this mean for my life. And yet, I find that some of these truths and some of these passages are the most powerful when we locate ourselves in God's grand storyline. And when we put ourselves and fix our eyes on the things he cares about, there's a depth we can go to in our relationship with Jesus that only happens when we also start to add to our hearts the things that matter to him. Amen? Amen. And so this is one of those messages. And I want to start off by reading you four verses here in Luke 19. And, and then we're actually going to go through a whole chunk of Luke 19, but, I want to, but I'm going to get back to this passage. Okay? So this is Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, speaking of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray, and let's ask Jesus to give us his heart today. Lord Jesus, we come to you, maker of the universe, and we love you. And so we sang songs of worship, beautiful songs of worship to you this morning. And now, Lord Jesus, we want to continue the worship by taking some time to listen to your heart and to listen to your plans and to say, Lord, that we also care about the things that you care about. And so I pray that, Lord Jesus, that you would give us your heart and that you would help us to locate ourselves in your grand storyline so that we can grow in our maturity, that we can have strength. Lord Jesus, I know that people come into these services with all kinds of pain and things that they're carrying. Jesus, I pray that as we turn our eyes to you in this service, that you would carry our burdens for us. In your precious and powerful name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So, Verses 41 to 44, I want to get there, but I'm going to go back to verse 11, and we're going to work our way back up to the passage I just read to you. And the thing you have to understand in Luke chapter 19, just to give you a bunch of context in the book of Luke, uh, Luke 19 is, is kind of the beginning of the end. This is in Luke 19 now. Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and, uh, and this is his final week now uh, alive here on this, on this earth before his death. 
And so this is kind of the beginning of the end. And you're going to notice uh, certain themes that become very prominent now in this chapter. There are certain themes that go throughout this chapter and that are going to carry on now until the cross. And one of those you're going to see throughout this chapter is this is most certainly a judgment chapter. There are dark overtones of judgment underneath everything Jesus is saying and doing in this chapter. And we're going to see some of those things. But anyway, we're going to start in verse 11. And as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the, king of God, that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, I've said this several times in this series already, but I, I, I've kept telling you that the disciples were expecting him to set up his kingdom right away. In fact, in this very chapter, and we're going to read a little bit of that story as well, the big Palm Sunday story where Jesus enters into Jerusalem, that happens in this chapter, and I can only imagine what the disciples were thinking. Here's Jesus on a donkey and everybody's saying, you know, hail to the king, essentially, and they're thinking, woohoo, finally, he's going to stop just walking around doing this itinerant preacher thing and healing thing, and he's going to set up his kingdom on earth. And yet, throughout all this chapter, you're going to see over and over again, Jesus is very clearly telling them, I am not going to set up my kingdom right now. In fact, I'm not going to do it for a long, long time. And so he tells them a parable because they suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, the parable that he's going to tell them is a very famous parable. And the variation we're going to read here is a little bit of a different variation often than the one that's told from the other Gospels, but that's only because uh, Jesus must have, he must have enjoyed, liked this parable, and he will have preached it in different forms and different variations in different places that he was preaching. But it's the parable, basically, of the servants being given the talents, and then the one servant is unfaithful and doesn't invest the talent. It's, the, it's pretty much the exact same parable with a few details changed, simply because Jesus will have preached it in different ways in different places. And so we'll read uh, some portions of this parable, not the whole thing, because I'm, I'm working my way back to verse 41. But Jesus said, therefore, verse 12, a nobleman went into a far country. Okay, so I want you to notice this, the right off the start in this parable, a nobleman, and of course the nobleman represents Jesus, went off to a far country. The whole point is he's going to be gone a long time. The nobleman isn't setting up his kingdom right away. He's going, to a, he's going a long ways away. He's going to a far country. And again, you have to see this. Jesus was very clear in his ministry. I am not going to do this right away. I'm not going to set up my kingdom right away. So this nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So again, we have this idea of him being gone. And, and of course, now we're going to see this parable where he gives, in this case, it's not talents, it's minas. Um, but we have this whole parable now where, where basically what Jesus is saying, while I'm gone, I have a job for you to do. That's kind of the point of the parable. The, the, the parable is in the context of I'm leaving for a long time, a long, long time before I come back. And in the meantime, there's a certain way I want you to wait. I don't want you waiting by, you know, sitting on your hands and waiting. When is he coming back? When is he coming back? When is he coming back? I don't want you waiting by sitting. I want you waiting by working. I want you waiting by, by working, okay? So we're going to see that. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, okay? And so a little, again, here's a difference. You know, in some of the parables when he told it, it was three servants, and then and different ones, different ones. In this one, it's ten servants, ten minas. A mina was about three months' worth of salary. Each servant gets one mina. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man 
uh, to reign over us. And, and I, again, I don't want to spend lots of time on this parable, but again, there's, immediately there's just an application. While the nobleman is in this far, far country, and while there's, while there's this long period of time where we're waiting for him to come back, we're supposed to take everything he's blessed us with and then invest it back for his kingdom, okay? And so, of course, here it's minus. That would include, you know, the resources he's blessed us with. That would include... Uh, time, it would include energy, it would include other things that we don't think of often, but our marriage, our singleness, you know, both things are a gift from God. Marriage is a gift from God, singleness is a gift from God. So are we using our marriage for God, or are we using our singleness for God? Are we using these things, Jesus says, I'm going to be gone for a long, long time, while I'm gone, you're not just kind of living and sitting around until I come back, you're intentionally taking everything I've given to you, and you're investing it back for my kingdom. Okay, but now what we're going to see, I'm going to skip ahead in this parable, and now I want to show you the judgment theme that is really beginning to build in these passages, and that runs, it's an undercurrent throughout this entire chapter. And so we jump ahead a, a few verses, and, and we come to him now uh, being angry with the one servant who, who just sat on his mina. And he, that's the nobleman, said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So that's kind of, ha. Huh. And again, I, I want to just point you to something. I'm going to keep repeating it until we, we get it into our DNA. Jesus would not have been a popular preacher nowadays. And, and he actually wasn't popular back then. I, I mean, he was popular in a sense, and he wasn't. Like, he was, he was hated. But I want you to see the, the violence and the judgment in this passage. Okay? So the nobleman comes back. He is very harsh with the servant. He takes everything away. The servant who did not invest, he takes all that he was given, takes it away. And then the citizens who had rejected him, he says, slaughter them before me. Now, the thing you have to understand is Jesus is doing something very specific here. He is really turning the tables on the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people in general who are going to reject him there in Jerusalem. He is, he's turning the tables. See, because the thing you have to remember again, always remember, is that these Jewish leaders and all the Jewish people, including Jesus' disciples, they all expected they're, they're not surprised by the violence itself. They all expected the Messiah to be violent. He's, he's uh, prophesied to be a king like David. They were expecting him to come back and, and kill a bunch of people. They're enemies. They were expecting the Messiah to come back and kill the Romans and kill the bad people and the wicked people and the bad nations who were against them and then set up his kingdom on the earth. They were fully expecting violence. But in this parable, Jesus is very specifically turning the tables back onto them because it's not the people they would have expected who are getting judged in this parable. Notice there's two groups of people in this parable. There's servants and citizens. It's not the outsiders. It's not the outsiders who are getting judged. It's not the Romans. It's not the enemies. It's servants and citizens. So the servant that sits on what he has and and. And, and doesn't invest for the kingdom, that servant loses everything he was given. He's, he's judged very harshly. And the citizens who rejected the nobleman as king, not the outsider, but the citizens, those are the ones that when the nobleman come back, comes back and he judges them. And the whole point that Jesus is saying is, is he's saying, 
just because you guys are citizens of God's people. And they were. The Jewish people, God's people. But what he's saying to them, he's turning it right back onto them. He's saying, when I come back, all those of you, who, even though you call yourself part of God's people and are part of God's people, all of those of you who reject me as king, my judgment will not just fall on my enemies from the outside of Israel, it will also fall on my enemies from within Israel. He has turned the tables back specifically onto them. And you're going to see this now throughout this chapter. You're going to just see this growing uh, prophetic foreboding judgment coming against God's people, the Jewish people in this case, specifically, all right? And so we move to the very next, uh, the very next story, verse 28, which is the big Palm Sunday story. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And again, for time's sake, I'm, I'm working my way to verse 41, so I'm going to skip the part about him buy, getting a donkey and all that sort of stuff. And as he rode along, they, the crowds of people there around Jerusalem, spread their cloaks on the roads. This is the one they're putting palm branches down, they're putting cloaks down, all this sort of stuff. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now again, you have to think how the disciples must have felt here. Oh, it's finally happened. We knew, that, we knew he was the Messiah all along. Now they're marching into Jerusalem, and the people are saying, you know, praise the king. This is it. He's getting crowned. We're in Jerusalem. The kingdom's here. I mean, they haven't been listening to a thing he's been saying. The noble's going to go away. Men's going to go away for a long, long time, and then he's going to return. They haven't heard a thing. And they're thinking, now's the time, okay? And this is usually a passage that we preach as kind of a happy passage, but you have to understand that Jesus isn't fooled. He knows exactly what is in every person's heart. This same crowd that's yelling, blessed is he who comes in the, in, in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king, he knows this same mob is going to call for his crucifixion and ask for a murderer to be released just five days from now on Friday. He knows that. And so some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered with this famous verse, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones uh, would cry out. Now, a lot of people, you might be sitting there, you might be going, this isn't a judgment passage. I thought you said there was judgment undertones and everything in this passage, but that's not a judgment passage. I mean, this is a famous passage we usually use about praise and worship. Isn't it true? That if we don't praise God, even the rocks will, will cry out. And, and certainly there is some truth to that in this conversation that, you know, the Pharisees say, you know, you've got to tell these people to be quiet. And there's certainly a sense in which Jesus uh, is, is saying, well, if they don't, the, the rocks, uh, you know, it's right that they should praise me. But the thing you have to understand is Jesus is quoting here from the Old Testament. He's quoting here from the Old Testament. And the other thing you have to understand is what I just said before is the context of this passage. If these were quiet, the rocks would cry out. Jesus knows this crowd's going to go quiet. They're shouting for him today, but the very next day already, they're not shouting for him anymore. And five days from now, they're going to want him dead. So when this crowd does go quiet, are the rocks going to cry out? Jesus knows they're going silent. So is this a praise and worship passage, or is there something more? And there is something more. See, the thing you have to understand is Jesus is quoting here, most likely from Habakkuk. And by the way, I'm, I looked this up this week, and uh, several people have asked me, how do you pronounce Habakkuk? And uh, I actually am only saying Habakkuk because that's what is commonly said around here. I prefer Habakkuk, 
But I looked it up on the internet this week, and you can actually say Habakkuk three ways, and all of them are right. You can say Habakkuk, you can say Habakkuk, which I, I prefer for some reason because it's just weird, and the other one is you can say Habakkuk. You can say it however you want, and it's all correct. But I'm going to say Habakkuk for your, for your, uh, for your uh, whatever, edification. And, uh, but I might slip and say Habakkuk a couple of times just because I like saying it. Anyway, uh, verse 9, Habakkuk says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. Now look at this. For the stone will cry out. For the stone will cry out. This was not just a random thing Jesus was saying in Luke chapter 19. From the wall and a beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. So what's going on here? Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2 is, uh, is, Habakkuk is, is prophesying judgment on the Babylonians, on the Babylonian nation. Now the, the Babylonians were a wicked nation, very violent, and, uh, and they weren't just fighting wars kind of in ju for just reasons like self-defense or something like that. They were a marauding nation. They would take over nations and slaughter everybody and take over their cities and then live in their homes. And so they would be living in the very homes of the people that they had slaughtered and tortured and done all kinds of horrible things to. And Habakkuk, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has this beautiful metaphor, and he prophesies against the Babylonians, and he says, the stones in those homes, the stones in those homes and the wooden beams in those homes are witnesses to the violence you committed to those homeowners. And they will cry out for justice against you. The stones are crying out for justice. They are witnesses of what you've done. This isn't praise and worship. This is a judgment passage. And you actually, this metaphor of stones being like witnesses uh, and for judgment purposes is in a number of different places in the Old Testament. I'll show you just one more. And then we'll go back to Luke chapter 19. But Joshua, uh, chapter 24, Joshua is, is just about to die. And he's exasperated with the people he's been leading his life, you know, the last 40 years or however long he had led them. And he's exasperated. And so he's about to go back to his home and die. And he gives this speech. And it's not like a rousing speech of like rah, rah. It's basically, I give up on you. You constantly go after idols. You'll never follow God. You know, very motivational speech. And the leaders of Israel hear this speech and they go, whoa, whoa, no, that's not true. No, 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 we're going to do it. We're going to put aside our idols and we are going to follow the one true God and we will be faithful. So then Joshua does something interesting and we'll read it. Joshua chapter 24, verse 26. And he, that's Joshua, took a large stone. So he took a large stone and set it up under the terebinth, a huge tree. They, they set up this large, large stone, Okay under this tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And then Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. This stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. And again, we see this metaphor, this, this, this reminder, and Joshua says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be gone, but this stone will, will continue to be here, and it will be a witness to the promises you have made, and if you break these promises, it is going to cry out for judgment against God. It's a witness to what you have done. Now, if we go back to Luke chapter 19, so on the surface, you know, these stones will cry out. Sure, I don't think it's wrong to say absolutely not. I think on the surface, there's sort of this idea, and some of the people in the crowd, not expecting Jesus to be making a prophetic jab at the Jewish leadership 
and the Jewish people in general in Jerusalem who were about to reject him. They may have just heard him saying, yeah, the stones are going to cry out, the stones would praise him. But the fact of the matter is, this crowd did stop praising Jesus, and those stones didn't praise. And the reason is because Jesus was saying, these stones are going to cry out for justice. The stones of this city are witnesses to the evil plans even now you guys are making behind closed doors. And the stones of this city are witnesses to what you are about to do to me this Friday. They're witnesses, and they are going to cry out for justice. And when you understand what, what Jesus is saying here, now the next passage makes absolute sense. The very next verse, we now get to verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, now some sometimes people wonder, wasn't he in the city already? How is he drawing near? The fact of the matter is the city of Jerusalem had spilled out beyond the walls. And so they had already met him in the streets and were shouting and Hosanna and all this sort of stuff. But it's very hilly around there and, and he comes up over this hill and now he sees the, the city proper and everybody's been crying out, you know, Hosanna and all this stuff. And that says, and when he drew near and saw the city, it says he wept over it. Now, we in English just see the word weep and we just think weep because that's the word we have for it. And we just think it's, it's the same weeping as Jesus did in John 11:35, you know, John 11:35 is the shortest, shortest verse in the Bible. It says Jesus wept. And we just see those two verses and we think it's the same thing because it's wept and it's wept. It's the same word. And, uh, and yet in Greek, the two words are very, very different. So in, in John 11, verse 35, when Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb and the women and his friends and stuff are, are, are crying and they're very sad, and it says he wept, the word there, the Greek word is dakruo, and what it means is like a, a tears, many, many tears. It's a kind of a quiet weeping. It's, it's, uh, it's tears streaming down his face. So he comes to Lazarus' tomb, and, and he's, he's going to raise him anyway, which just shows that God empathizes with us, even though he knows the future, and even though he can fix all things by healing and stuff, still he feels our sadness with us. And so he stands at Lazarus' tomb, and just before he raises him from the dead, and he stands there weeping with these women, just Tears streaming down his face, feeling sadness. That's the cruel. But in Luke 19, verse 41, the word there is not the cruel. It's a very different word. It's the Greek word klyo. And klyo does not mean soft crying. It does not mean many tears. What it literally means is wailing and sobbing. It's anguish and it's loud. So when it says that he came over the hill and he saw Jerusalem, it, what it's really saying is like he is bent over sobbing, heaving sobs. He's in anguish. This is the kind of crying that makes men uncomfortable. You got people all around, they've been shouting, Hosanna, 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 the Pharisees, the disciples. He comes over and he looks at Jerusalem proper and he's bent over, racking sobs, wailing out loud, crying. And he wept over it. Well, why is he sobbing and wailing like this. Well, we keep reading, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And he's crying out. They, they had a chance. They could, have, they could have accepted him as Messiah right then and there. And he would have made peace for them for the rest of history. Would that you have known the things that make for peace. And now a very scary line but now they are hidden from your eyes. But now, as of now, they're hidden from your eyes. In other words, they weren't hidden before. Up to this point, 
these people have all had free choice. Up to this point, the Pharisees at any point could have repented. They could have fallen on their knees and gone, we were wrong. We're sorry. You're the Messiah. And he would have been their Messiah. It would have been, it would have been amazing. Up to this point, they could have made the choice. They could have repented and they could have turned around and they could have avoided everything he's now going to prophesy is going to happen. But at this point now, they have resisted so much that it is now out of their hands. Is that not a scary thing? But now it's hidden from your eyes. In other words, from this point on, you don't even have the choice to turn around. What's going to happen now is going to happen. And sometimes I think we just actually need to be sobered a little bit by that because, as you know, you can resist God and resist God and resist God, and he's so merciful and patient. I'm not talking about weakness. But you can, in rebellion, just resist him and resist him and resist him and resist him. And at a certain point, and the whole time you have free choice that you could turn from it and you could repent, at a certain point, God can get to a place, and that's a scary place where he says, and now that choice is taken from you, and he just gives a person over to their sin. But now this is hidden from your eyes. Now you're going to experience the consequences of your rejection of me. And now he begins to prophesy. And again, this is, this is why he's wailing and sobbing. He doesn't just have an impression. Like this isn't the equivalent of, of like listening prayer for us, you know, where you kind of get an impression and you're not totally sure maybe or you have an image of something. He is actually, he's God and he sees the future and he is actually seeing these things happen. And he says, for the days will come upon you, speaking of Jerusalem, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. He's seeing this. The day is going to come when your enemies are going to come to Jerusalem, this glorious city. One of, city is one of the most amazing cities in the world at the time. And they're going to build a, a, a wall around the outside of your wall. And they're going to hem you in and, and lay siege to you. And then they're going to tear you down to the ground. Just level the city. You and your children with you. They're going to kill your men and your women and your children and your babies. They're going to kill everything. They're going to level this city. And they're going to kill everyone inside. And they will not leave one stone upon another. They're going to level it so bad, you're not going to even find stones laying on top of each other. They're all just going to be leveled. This is what Jesus is prophesying. This is why he's wailing and, and sobbing. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. And of course, all of this did happen. Everything in this, this prophecy is, and I'm going to show you another prophecy right at the end of this message, but this prophecy is unbelievably accurate. Just under 40 years later, just under 40 years later in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus, right around Passover time in spring, brings an army up to Jerusalem and literally builds a wall, a barricade, all around the outside of the city so that nothing can go in or out. And in fact, some historians say that he actually allowed, because Passover is the time when thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews would flock to Jerusalem for the Passover from all over the world. So the population of Jerusalem would, would swell enormously at Passover. And there are some people that say that he allowed all those Passover visitors to come in to swell the population so they would starve quicker and more people would die. And then he built this barricade and he shut them in. And for five months, he just starved this jam-packed city. And then in August, he unleashed the Roman legions and they attacked. And it was like a demonic rage. On, on these soldiers. They, they literally attacked. Uh, some some uh, historians, Josephus writes that Titus didn't want them to do this. Now, we're not always sure. Some of his Josephus might be trying to gain favor with Titus or something, but 
But he said that Titus didn't want them to wreck everything, but the soldiers were in a rage and they literally tore everything down. The temple had been built by Herod. It was one of the wonders of the world. And they tore it down. They just tore the whole city down, ripped it apart. They killed everyone they saw. It said there's, there's stories and sold the rest into slavery, but bodies literally piling up. Children, babies, women, men, slaughter. Horrible, horrible, horrible event. Now, you might be sitting there and you're going, why would a good God do something so horrible? That's just, that's just over the top. Like, why would he do something like that to his people, the Jews? And the first thing you have to understand is God didn't do it. The Romans did. That's the first thing. God, wasn't, God didn't like that. That's why Jesus was whale sobbing on the side of the road 40 years earlier. He said, you've rejected me as your king, and because you've rejected me as your king, I'm not, you've rejected me to protect you. You've rejected me to be your leader. That's, and he can see. It's like a parent with a rebellious child. Uh, my kids aren't, aren't quite old enough yet to, to do that. I hope none of mine go through that. Um, but my parents, I, I got to watch it because my parents had a couple of kids. Not me. <laughs> Some children who will remain nameless, but they're both in this service this morning. <laughs> but, you know, it's like parents, and we, you know, we've known other parents in this church too, and then your kids, and, and, it's, you know, and it's this awful thing because you love your kids. No matter what they do, this is the thing about being a parent. Once you have kids, your love dial is on stuck when it comes to your kids. Isn't that true? You can't not love them. If you could stop loving them, it would be a lot less painful. Isn't that true? But because you can't stop loving them, now they rebel and they start doing terrible things. It's incredibly painful. And then what's really horrible is when you start to watch them, right? And we've seen lots of parents have to go through this. And, and you do your best. You raise them. You pray. You're, you're, and, but at a certain point, they just make choices. And you watch your kids being very rebellious. And they won't listen to you. And they start to do things. And they're on a path of destruction. And you see that they are going to experience destruction in their lives. But you love them so much. That is one of the most painful things. It's not that you've rejected them. It's not that you want them to go through that destruction. It's you love them, but they have rebelled. That's what Jesus was feeling on the side of the road. And he said, you're gonna, I can see the end result of this. So yes, killing the son of God, that was terrible. Um, and the Romans came, but those, each of those Roman soldiers that participated in that, just like every other human being in history, will stand before the judgment seat of God one day and give account for what they did. Amen. It's true. So God allowed them. It is judgment, but it's not that a good God enjoyed that or wanted to do that. But now here's where this message now is going to take a little turn. Because many, many Christians, and now I want to show you God's heart, because this is so important. Many Christians over the centuries, not just recently, many, many Christians over the centuries, starting with the early church when it became, started to go really uh, Greek there. In fact, after 70 A.D., have interpreted the events of 70 AD in this passage where Jesus is pronouncing this judgment, they have interpreted this as Jesus has rejected Jerusalem. They have interpreted this as Jesus has rejected the nation of Israel. And now the nation of Israel is just another nation. It's like Mexico or Australia or Brazil or Canada. It's just another nation. The thing you have to understand here is Jesus has never rejected Jerusalem. Jesus has never rejected Jerusalem. The whole Bible... Okay? The whole Bible revolves around the nation of Jerusalem. You ever notice that? If you have your devotions, Jerusalem comes up a lot more than Beijing, Toronto, New York, Babylon, any. 
I mean, Babylon is at least old enough to be in here, and it, it pops up in a few places, but this book is centered around Jerusalem. A lot of Christians think that ended after the Old Testament. It did not end after the Old Testament. When we fast forward to the future, history will continue to revolve around Jerusalem, and we know that because of Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle John sees the new heaven and new, the new earth, and this is what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, and what's the holy city called? New Jerusalem. Wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not called New Winnipeg. Thank God. It's not called New Steinbeck, though that could have been a decent idea, okay? It's not called New Melbourne, it's not called New York, it's not called any of those things, right? It's the New Jerusalem. Jerusalem's going to be the center. Jerusalem was the center of the Bible story in the Old Testament, and Jerusalem's going to be the center. Now, this does not mean that Jesus doesn't love the rest. And this is what always happens. When you get into the storyline of the Bible and God's heart for Jerusalem, you always have, it's such a Canadian thing, such a Western thing. Because we just want to feel like we're so unique and special. So let me just first of all pat you on the back and say, Jesus thinks you're unique and special. Does that feel better? So woe if you start to talk about Jesus' heart for Israel because doesn't he like Gentiles too? Doesn't he like Canadians? Yes, he does. He loves every city. I, I skipped over a verse there. I'm making uh, Ken and Sarah work for their money, which they don't get paid since they're volunteers in the PowerPoint. But anyway, uh, he loves every city. If you guys can go back to the Jonah one, I want to show you this, and we'll go back on the Jerusalem thing. He loves every city. But there's a special place, well, I'll get to that, Nineveh, right? Nineveh was a bad, bad place filled with Assyrians, not Jews. Bad, 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 bad place. They did terrible things. Jonah was happy to preach judgment on them. So he went there, he preached judgment. Tim preached a whole series on this over the course of like two years, one of the longest series we've ever had here, by the way, if you just so you know. Um, but anyway, and, uh, and then at the end of it, God doesn't destroy it and Jonah's mad. And then look what God says about this. And should I not pity Nineveh? that great city. Now, the word there, great, does not mean how we would say it, like, what a cool city, the nightlife, and the, you know, all this sort of stuff. It just means big. God doesn't like cities in the sense of the nightlife and the architecture and all that sort of stuff. In that sense, there's probably a lot of cities he, he thinks are wicked and gross. But in terms of the people there, he says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God deeply loves every city. He loves Tokyo and he loves London, and he loves Berlin, and he loves Steinbeck, and Mitchell, and Blumenort, even though they're not cities, but he just loves people. So there isn't a city on the earth that he doesn't love, but here's the thing about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is his special spot. It's not about loving more. It's like my wife and I often talk about uh, Tobermory, and it's a wonderful spot, and we go there every summer, and we are going to go there again this summer. And, and it's a beautiful spot, but it's not the most beautiful spot in the world. There's more beautiful spots you can go to in the mountains. Uh, there's more spectacular places and islands. And I mean, it, it, it's, we, we love it. It's beautiful. But there are many, much more beautiful places in the world. There are many, much more adventuresome places to go in the world. Many, much more exciting places to go in the world. And we like to see some, some of those other places too, absolutely. But Tobermory is our spot. It's our spot. And uh, Jerusalem is, is similar. It's not that God doesn't love the other cities. 
It's not that he doesn't love the whole world. It's not that he's going to only be in Jerusalem in eternity, but Jerusalem is his spot. It's his spot. It's his city. And this is what all the prophets foretold, that when God sets up his kingdom, the cities he's going to live in and rule from will be Jerusalem. So, and I could show you, I mean, this is so much, we'd have to read the entire Bible for me to show you all this stuff. But I'll just show you one. Isaiah chapter 2, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. This is what it says about Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord. Now, when you see in prophetic scriptures, and it's talking about mountains. It's not talking about rocky mountains. It's not saying that the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be the biggest mountain. It's saying that his kingdom, his city, his nation is going to be higher than the other nations and kingdoms. It stands for kingdoms, government, influence. So the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. In other words, it's going to be the most powerful city, place, government. It's going to rule over the whole world. That's what it's going to do. And shall be lifted up above all the hills... And all the nations shall flow to it. Where are all the nations going to go? Jerusalem. That's going to be the center of everything. We're still going to live in other places around the world, and they're all going to be amazing, and, and God will visit us there, and we'll do crazy things. I think we're going to explore space and invent things, and it's good. heaven's going to be awesome. It's not going to be boring. But all the nations, it's going to center around the capital city, which is God's city, which is Jerusalem, are going to flow to Jerusalem. And then it says this, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord, the laws, and the preaching, and God's word will go out from where? Jerusalem. So when Jesus comes back to earth, he's not just coming back to any random spot. There's a specific place he's coming back to. There's a specific place he's going to live. And that is Jerusalem. And that's why all the whole climax and the culmination of human history, it's all building right now. We're in this time of building. We're close to the end of the Great Commission and things are building and culminating and all this sort of stuff. All of history is going to culminate and climax at this specific place on a map called Jerusalem. So I'll read you one more passage, and we'll go back to Luke chapter 19 and finish off. But Zechariah chapter 14. When Jesus returns, he's actually returning to Jerusalem to defend Jerusalem. All the world history is going to come to its climax at Jerusalem. Zechariah 14 says this. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Okay? The final thing, when Jesus comes back, is going to be a battle at Jerusalem. Now, there's this... There's this common misconception a lot of Christians talk about, a lot of Christians, very popular common misconception, it's called the Battle of Armageddon. Did you know that there is no Battle of Armageddon in the Bible anywhere, not a single place? There is no Battle of Armageddon. There's only one verse that mentions a place, it's called Armageddon. there's only one place in the Bible that mentions Armageddon, it's in Revelation chapter 16, and there's no battle there. It simply says that the nations who are resisting Jesus gather there for the fight at Jerusalem. All of history culminates and climaxes at Jerusalem. There's a battle for Jerusalem, and now we're going to see what God does. By the way, we have in our home, those of you who have visited us, we have in our, in our dining room right by the table, we have this picture. And uh, I did not take that picture. I've been to Israel, but I don't take good pictures. So I, I, just, I go places, and then I buy someone else's picture. But that's Jerusalem. 
and we have it there in our dining room, and our kids know this is where Jesus is coming back to, as a specific place. He's not just coming back anywhere. He's coming back to this place to fight for this place. That's what he's going to do. Do you want Jesus to come back, by the way? It's a real place on earth he's going to come back to. Then it says this in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. This is what God will do. So the nations are all going to gather because they hate Israel. We already see the seeds of that being true in in the world right now. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And I want to just stop here for a moment because this is so important. I want you to notice whose side Jesus is on in this battle. Do you notice that? That's really important for us Christians to know in this storyline. You say, how does this apply to my life today? This isn't about applying this to your life today. Do you love Jesus? Because this is what matters to his heart. When Jesus comes back, he, it's not like he's throwing dice or doing paper, rock, scissors to see whose side he's on. He's coming back on Jerusalem's side. He's coming back on Israel's side. And increasingly today, that is not a given among Christians. There's whole, the, most of the mainline Protestant de- denominations have come out with official statements against the nation of Israel today. And lots of more liberal-leaning Christians now have totally gone against Israel and make terrible statements about the state of Israel. But do you know, the Bible is so clear when Jesus comes back, he is fighting for Jerusalem. Now, this does not mean that as Christians, we have to, hard, we have to blank check endorse everything the nation of Israel does. We don't. They're human beings, and they're not following God, and they will make mistakes just like any other nation of the world. And when they commit injustices just like any other nation in the world, we don't stand for that. We don't support that. But as followers of Jesus, this matters to him. To be against the right of Israel to exist and the right of the Jewish people to be in Jerusalem is to be against God. You can be against them, but then this is who's going to be fighting against you when he comes back because he's fighting for Jerusalem. So he comes back to fight for Jerusalem, and it says then in verse 8, on that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, that's the Dead Sea. It won't be dead anymore because living waters are going to flow into it. And half of them to the western sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea. And it shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth from Jerusalem. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And this shall be the plague. Now, just to drive home this point of whose side Jesus is on. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And I left out some of the really disturbing parts. Verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. So, if we go back to Luke chapter 19 now. When Jesus is wail sobbing on the side of the road, and when he's proclaiming judgment against Jerusalem, it's not that he's rejecting Jerusalem. He's a parent of a rebellious child, and he knows that their choices, what they're going to do to him, is horribly wicked, and they're going to suffer terribly as a result, but he is not rejecting them. And sometimes it just boggles my mind why so many Christians are so eager to believe that Jesus has rejected Jerusalem, if he has broken his promises to them, what confidence can we have that he will keep his promises to us? Amen? I am very interested in God's promises to the nation of Israel because his, his integrity is at stake. And he has promised that they will be the center 
of the earth in eternity. He has promised that they will be blessed. He has promised that he will defend them in the end. And if he can break any of those promises, then he can break any of his promises as to us as believers about forgiveness and washing away our sins and everything else. And so Jesus has not rejected Jerusalem. The fact that they exist in 19, that starting in 1948, exactly 70 years ago, isn't that interesting? This year, it's 70 years since the nation of Israel came into existence. Back in April, they celebrated their 70th anniversary. That's a real embarrassment to everybody who was saying for 1,800 years that Jesus had rejected them. But all along, Jesus knew this was temporary. And we'll finish with this passage. Now, I want to just jump ahead to Luke chapter 21. And this is a big deal to Jesus. He keeps talking about Jerusalem through these chapters before he dies. So we'll finish with this. Jesus says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. And then he says this in verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. It's interesting, again, how accurate these prophecies are. Jesus gives this prophecy somewhere around 33 A.D., 40 years later, 70 AD happens, Jerusalem gets leveled, just like he said in Luke 19 and in Luke 21. But then, after that, not only did it get leveled, the Jewish people literally got scattered through the earth. And, and it happened a second time in 132 AD, and after that, the Jews literally, there was no Israel, there was no nation of Israel after that for 1,800 years. There was Jews everywhere. There was millions of them all over Europe. That's, and Hitler tried to kill them then 1,800 years later, right? But you'll find Jewish communities, only 14 million Jews roughly living around the world today. And so that's a tiny population, it's a tiny nation, and yet you'll find Jewish communities almost anywhere you go. You'll find them in Latin America, Central America, North America, Europe. You used to be able to find them in lots of places in Africa and the Muslim world. They have since been, uh, in, in large part, driven out uh, of those areas because of Islam in the last 100 years. But they're everywhere. Jesus said they will be scattered to all the nations, among all the nations. And this happened. It's amazing. And then it says this, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. This also happened. They got scattered, and then for 1,800 years, different empires, all kinds of wars, empires, kingdoms, big and small, fought over Jerusalem and it changed hands. It was trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. But I want you to notice this word. From the very beginning, Jesus said, this will be temporary. He was never rejecting them and he was never, this was never a permanent thing. He said this, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until. Notice that word until. There's an end coming. Until what? The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus said, I'm going to give the Gentiles a chance to, to fill up the cup of their judgment and to fill up the cup of their sins. But you know, it's crazy, as I just mentioned just before. In April this year, it's 70 years since the nation of Israel came into existence again. We are actually living, he said, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We're actually living in this time. Do you see that? Everything else Jesus has said in these prophecies exactly came true. The barricades, the sieges, the leveling, the dispersion among the nations. Everything he said will come true, including the part about until. That there would be a time when they would come back. And the craziest thing is, we are living in the time of the until right now. Israel's a nation again. 
So, you know, there's actually only two things left to happen. You know, Jesus tells this parable about a nobleman going to a far, far country and then coming back. The disciples were at the beginning of that parable. He's just leaving for a long, long time. We're living in the until time. The, we're living in the time when the time of the Gentiles is being fulfilled, right in our day. We're living right near the end of that parable. And there's only two things left to happen. One is the Great Commission has to be completed, and I keep talking about that. It's getting closer and closer and closer. And then the second thing that has to happen is what we saw in Zechariah and it's prophesied throughout the, the Old Testament is that all the nations will gather against Israel to destroy her. And in that time, the Great Commission will be completed and Jesus will come back to defend Jerusalem. But he will come back to earth. And everything else he has said has come 100% true. So will those things. Amen. So will those things. Well, just a couple of verses later, it says this. Now, when these things begin to take place, this is not a fear message. This is a hope message. Straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. When these things begin to take place is beginning to take place. So I ask again, are you looking forward to Jesus coming back? You know, the last prayer in the Bible is this. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, and this part is in red letters, this is Jesus, surely I am coming soon. And then John says this, amen, come Lord Jesus. Can we pray for Jesus to come back? I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Amen, Lord Jesus, come. We are tired of disease and suffering and immorality and war and depression and anxiety and loneliness and all the other pain and suffering and sin that we go through in this life. Lord Jesus, we are looking in your word and we are seeing your word coming true. And we are asking you here in this church to come back quickly. Come back soon. We're not waiting with our hands. We're not sitting on our hands waiting, Lord. We're going to redouble our efforts with urgency. We're going to pray and we're going to give, and we're going to serve, Lord Jesus, because we want to be part of this church renewal thing, and we want this church to be renewed. We want you to come back to a bride here at Southland that is, that is ready for you. But Lord Jesus, we want you to come back soon. Put that on our hearts. Give us that love overflowing for you and for people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.